0: So I will take advantage of this lull to uh, introduce our guest tonight. Uh, when I was in Berlin this past year, I, I went a few times to the university to see to Humboldt, especially where Wolfgang Ernst and people like that work, to see how they think about how they teach media. And I was real. I went into one class and I was really intrigued. Uh, they were Wolfgang had a thermometer and he was sort of saying, "Is this is this a, a medium?" It was an interesting debate. An argument. Yes, you know, this is a uh, an intermediary with signification, interpretive frames, blah, 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 and it was a useful way to sort of step out of the, bigger, out of the smaller box that we live in and all too often mass media. And money is another one of those artifacts that's really interesting to think about in terms of being a medium. Um, a lot of interpretive latitude, marked with signification, but multiple forms of and definitely sort of um, I think the work that uh, Lana uh, Swart did after she left this program at USC dealt a lot with money as a, as a, as a form of, of, of medium. Anyway, one of the nice things about money is that it has institutions attached, and those institutions are sometimes educational in nature, um, sometimes far more egregious. Maybe even that's egregious. But that's the space where, where our, our guest tonight fits. Um, Carolyn Jack is uh, probably, as it says up there, Indeed, a, PhD, a doctoral candidate at Cornell, exchange scholar here, uh, and also um, a visiting student. I think that's the category: visiting student at Microsoft Research, the Social Media Collective. There, she's writing her dissertation uh, on the dissertation with the top, of the title of "Capitalist Literacies: Economic Education." In the American social imaginary, which is working with Charlton Gillespie and Jonathan Stern among others, so it's a very interesting committee and a, a great take on this. Uh, it's looking at institutional networks, social imaginaries that have brought media artifacts from cartoons, uh, which you may have read about if you look at your article, uh, social imaginary um, uh, informational leaflets, TV programs, to uh, to the business uh, domain, business education domain. She also did her master's. She did an MA and a MBA, but I guess it was the MA at uh, at uh, Saint Louis University that had a very CMSy topic of uh, the telegraphic stock ticker and the creation of a mass financial public. <coughs> Interesting intervention in that space. She studies historical and present-day media with the aim to teach the American public about economics and capitalism. So those media, tests, those media tests with those. Uh, She draws on methodological and theoretical um, sources such as cultural studies, media histories, STS, information science, and business history. She's written two terrific articles one about citizen science in the Midwest at mid century, looking at the collection of children's teeth, you know, when kids' teeth fall out, uh, that turned out to be for purposes of tracking radioactivity, the very high radioactivity, relatively high radioactivity in the St. Louis area. It's a very interesting and beautifully written study. Uh, and another one on um, economic education and business propaganda in Cold War cartoons, looking at a right wing Bible college based uh, animation house and the, the film trailers that they spewed out, yes, so that they generated uh, <laughs> for a, nearly a decade, and where that fits uh, in terms of. Terms of it's sort of like tonight's uh, question in a certain way, where that fits in terms of an informational campaign or an educational campaign. So this tension between information and propaganda, um, how the same artifact might be framed in one of both ways, is where tonight's talk will pick up with the, um, especially the work at the uh, end. that's right. So Carol, thanks. Yeah. thank you so much. Well, uh, I'm just delighted to
1: have the opportunity to be here tonight. So. Um, before I start, I just want to say a big thanks to Ed for inviting me to come and speak here, and um, Andrew, who was indisp- indispensable in just making all the details really seamless to make this all come together. So, to give you a little bit of orientation towards this talk, um, well, I suppose it's fairly clear to you now that I do historically informed work, but I primarily identify as a media scholar, and uh, that kind of shapes my interest and it shapes the way that I approach the art. And lately, I've been wondering about what historical cases might have to tell us about some things that we've been seeing in the contemporary moment, Um, specifically about companies like Airbnb and Uber. So um, part of how these companies that get called peer-to-peer companies or sharing economy companies have gotten so popular and made so much money is that they work around existing categories of commerce. Um, they tend to make the argument that they're software companies, right? Like Airbnb is not a hotel company; it's a software company. They provide a platform. Um, and uh, when companies like this are faced with charges like tax evasion or unfair labor conditions or other social harms, um, it's frequent that they either decline to comment about it at all or let one of their spokespeople reframe the issue to one that's about income income supplementation, entrepreneurship and mutual benefit. And we can bet that behind the scenes they're lobbying our lawmakers. Um, But we've also seen a few cases where these companies have created media texts like these ones that speak directly to the public about what kinds of regulation businesses should be subject to. Um, For example, in 2015, in July, Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York City was talking about capping the number of Uber cars that could be on the New York City streets at any, any given point in time. Um, and uh, Uber responded in app. You can see a little screenshot there. Uh, no cars, Let's see why. This is the De Blasio mode that displayed no available rides to anyone and urged users to call the mayor's office. Um, and even has a button there that it's blue, so you can't see it, but it says email now, right? So they put this right into the app. Um, and on the right, you see in October of 2015, The city of San Francisco proposed some legislation to limit the amount of short-term rentals that could happen at any given point in time. Um, And this was pretty much aimed directly at Airbnb. Uh, So this piece of legislation was called Proposition F. And uh, Airbnb argued in its defense that the limit on short-term rentals like this would uh, be bad for the city because it would actually reduce the city's tax revenues by about $12 million. So it uh, expressed this view in a series of display ads, you see one of them here, um, that told Bay Area Public Services to enjoy the money while it lasted and to spend it on things like extra library hours, uh, free parking, and bike lanes. It's out of frame here, but each one of these assigned love Airbnb. So what we see here are public-facing, corporate-sponsored media texts that tell us how corporations act in favor of the common good. Right, And of course, it's a very particular version of the common good that has a bit more to do with convenience than it necessarily does with providing essential services. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a claim about what's good for all of us together. And I see those media attacks created by Airbnb and Uber is expressing a dynamic that kind of enfolds the logics of consumer advertising into politics. And what I'll show you today is that that dynamic is not just an artifact of our present moment. In fact, it's present back into the 1930s. Um, the genre's history is especially relevant to the organization of the Ad Council. And, and we can maybe think of them as a propaganda unit turned PSA house. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, we'll then spend some time on a particular Ad Council case from the 1970s that shows us how a group of corporate interests got their point of view represented and kept other points of view out. And that's a story that has some relevance in the present day, so that's where we'll end up. So to start off with selling business to the people. Well, throughout the 20th century, American corporations have used media to intervene in conversations about uh, the public understandings that we have of business. And these interventions have taken several forms that pretty much followed the conventions of advertising. So if you think of just a really standard ad, and the Mad Men fans among among you will recognize the slogan, it's toasted. Um, This is a very simple ad based on the attributes of the product, telling people how it's better than other products out there. But ad makers get called on, and they have gotten called upon in the past to do other kinds of work as well. They've gotten asked to produce what we might call institutional advertising. Um, And the goal of institutional advertising is to improve a company's public relations, Um, Not on the basis of attributes of the product itself, but what the company does in society. So institutional ads are, you know, pretty straightforward and they've been around for a very long time. So here you see an institutional ad from around about 1909. Um, This is for AT&T. And uh, it doesn't actually sell particular models of handset, which was one of the things that AT&T did at this moment. It more makes a series of claims about American business people and how they're powerful, and how they're powerful because they have telephones. So uh, what we're seeing here is that practices of product salesmanship sometimes overlap with more diffuse uh, civic or even moral kinds of claims about what's good for America. But in my work, I ask, what if we took that a step further? Um, What if we go one more level of abstraction from the product, but keep the logics of advertising? And that's exactly what I see in the genre that I study, um, which is called uh, economic education. And it's really embedded in historical specificity, right? In the historical moments of the 20th century in the United States. So um, by 1930, late 1930s, Big Business was getting pretty nervous about regulation and taxation, right? So corporate leaders of various companies and business advocacy groups, this would be people like the US Chamber of Commerce or the National Association of Manufacturers, responded to these expanded New Deal policies by advertising business itself to the American people. And although these executives and advocates talked amongst themselves about selling the system, the language that they used to communicate with people was about economic education. That's what they called the things that they produced. And I tend to put scare, scare quotes around it when I'm writing about this, because um, neither, words is, neither of these words is as straightforward as it initially seems, right? Um, what we're talking about in a lot of these early cases is effectively business propaganda. Um, and it isn't so much about what we might, like a boilerplate definition of economics would be something like, the study of how scarce resources are allocated in a society, right? Um, It's not about that. Um, And it's also not about the kind of free market vision that someone like Adam Smith might have put forth, which says, okay, we want to have minimal regulation, but there are some areas where the state needs to step in because otherwise there's going to be social harm. Um, What we're talking about is a very specific 20th century notion of free enterprise in which the state's role is to support but not interfere with industrial functioning. So, to give you a really early example of this, this is from 1939, Um, and this is a billboard campaign from the National Association of Manufacturers that collects collects capitalism, democracy, um, social mobility, and civil freedoms under this banner of the American Way. Um, And billboards and print ad campaigns were just one of the ways that this could uh, take place, these economic education projects. There were also institutional films, like this one from the same year, Round and Round, so this is a stop-motion film with like little wooden puppets who were um, working in a widget factory and the idea of this is to dramatize um, cycles of production and consumption um, but weirdly uh, this never once mentions profit. I think that's pretty interesting. Um, so these would be shown in classrooms or employee lunchrooms, places like that. And uh, as Bill mentioned there other films, that played in movie theaters, as bumper reels for um, feature films. And these were feature films for adults. Um, this is 1947. This is Make Mind Freedom, uh, which is one of the, in a series of films that was kind of quietly funded by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Um, some of you may be familiar with, if you watch PBS, you often hear the name of the Sloan Foundation. Um, so Sloan was, at this point in time in 47, had just retired from being the chairman of General Motors and was interested in kind of fostering pro-business attitudes among the public, but was really reluctant to do that under his own name, lest people perceived it to be propaganda. Um, So he actually did these kind of covertly funded projects, um, this being one of them, and gave donations to the small Bible college, Harding College, as Heather mentioned, that uh, ended up being the sponsor in name of this cartoon and the presenter of the cartoon. So we see this dynamic, right? There's a dynamic of a pro-business message that gets presented as educational um, by a seemingly neutral body. So there are some descriptive features, features that you probably picked up on at this point about this genre um, that help to it off as an analytical category. So we're talking about media that's public-facing. Um, it's funded using donations from either individual corporations corporate funded philanthropic organizations like the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, um, business advocacy groups like Chamber of Commerce or the NAM. Um, I'm also talking about media that's fundamentally not oriented towards entertainment as its primary goal. Um, it's really oriented towards fostering public support for minimal regulation of business practices. And it can be entertaining, and often tries to be. Uh, but entertainment for entertainment's sake isn't really the thing that's really at stake here. And finally, when it comes to who actually makes these rather strange uh, media texts, there's a lot of variation in orga- organizational arrangements. right? So you can have um, someone like the Ford Motor Company who um, sponsors something and puts it out under their own name. Or you can have someone like the Chamber of Commerce who takes a lot of organizations' money and kind of pulls it together. Um, or uh, third-party productions that have the kind of covert funding we saw with Make by Freedom. And uh, in terms of the actual personnel, right? sometimes we see economists or public officials getting involved in this project. But uh, the people who are really at the center of it are business people. So they're the CEOs of companies. They're the people who are in the Ad Council. They're public relations people, advertising executives, advertising creative workers, and market researchers. So in addition to those descriptive features of the media productions themselves, um, going to the archives has helped me to mark off some kind of uh, boundaries of this category by looking to the, I- the kinds of like, common sense ideas right, that uh, informed the creation of these texts. And I like to think about these ideas as social imaginaries. And there's a brief description there from uh, Charles Taylor, although there is a lengthy article and an even lengthier book if this idea excites you. Mm -hmm. Um, We could say the social imaginaries are kind of like the diffuse background scaffolding that help us make sense of our social reality. So they give us kind of an implicit sense of how things go and how they ought to go. And I see in these campaigns some kind of specific social imaginaries that people in corporate management circles shared about markets and media and about democracy and what all these things mean in a democratic society. So uh, there's a particular social imaginary of markets in play here. And it suggests that a government that intervenes in the workings of business will inevitably intervene in other parts of public life. In other words, the civil liberties of individuals, so things like freedom of speech, assembly, religion, and the press, get bound up with the functional liberties of industrial corporations. So from this perspective, people need to be saved from their own misunderstandings of the economic system, or democracy itself will be under threat. Um, Now, you might rightfully object at this point that corporate managers might have been deploying these sorts of ideas in a cynical attempt to defend their profits. Um, especially because this was happening during the Cold War uh, in the later years and that made it easy and convenient to cloak the profit motive in talk of democracy. Um, And this is something that I struggle with when I'm in the archives because there's no way to really get inside one of my historical actors heads and know whether they were speaking cynically or whether they were being sincere Um, or whether they fell somewhere in the middle to be honest with you but I think that it's useful to be able to recognize that whether they were expressed cynically or sincerely, these social imaginaries made claims about the social legitimacy of business that got taken up across multiple institutional contexts. And there's also a particular social imaginary that my historical actors expressed about mass media as being powerful and persuasive. Now, if you were at Fred Turner's talk, I think it was about a week and a half ago, These ideas will be familiar to you. Concerns about the persuasive power of media to make people act unthinkingly, right? Um, But how this plays out in economic education materials is uh, this sense that the mass media is the best possible way to get the message to the people who desperately need to hear it. And often in the archive, those people end up being the working class and other people who are not in the elite. And this social imaginary is kind of similar to what communication theorists today would refer to as a deficit model, right? So there's this kind of idea that people don't have information, but if we poured information into them as if they were a container, then they would assimilate it effortlessly and use it to make their decisions. So one of the interesting things about social imaginaries is watching their expression over time and how they get built into institutional structures. If you're like me, then the Ad Council has just kind of always existed. Um, But in fact, the story of its founding was surprising to me and uh, brings in some pretty interesting implications. And as we'll see, the history of economic education kind of surfaces uh, within it from time to time. They intersect with one another. So the Ad Council is best known for producing stuff like this, right? Public service announcements, PSAs, with uh, memorable slogans, and lovable characters, Um, things like uh, Smokey the Bear or Woozie the Owl. And these kinds of pro-social messages were in the Ad Council's DNA really from the very start. Um, But so is the dynamic of industry defending itself against regulation by the state. Now, I mentioned that the New Deal spurred economic education campaigns as a kind of pan-industrial defense. And we see this not just with industrial manufacturers who funded outfits like the Chamber of Commerce and the National Association of Manufacturers, but also within particular industries that were affected by this regulatory scheme, right? So, for example, late 1930s, the Federal Trade Commission gets the power to regulate advertising claims about food, drugs, and cosmetics. And um, this is to address uh, kind of growing public concern over advertising practices like. Labeling potentially harmful laxatives as safe weight loss pills, and uh, this met with some public approval, but advertisers, some of them, saw them as saw this as a dangerous precedent. So, by the start of the 1940s, and certainly by 1941, advertising professionals were starting to organize to take action against these kind of encroachments on their turf. Right, so. Uh, They're coming up with strategies to protect their industry. And if you look to the archive, you see them holding up advertising as an essential element of the American way, that it has to do with free speech and the free enterprise system. And you hear them talking about controls over industry and how they're threats to the American way of life. This is all very much in line with the kind of ideas that we are just talking about. Um, So uh, a group of advertising professionals set out to uh, persuade the American public that advertising not only was good, but that it could also do good. And uh, the plan was to argue that advertising was part of free expression, that it helped the economy, and that it could serve social causes. So uh, just about a month and some change later, when uh, the USA entered the war, the ad council, or excuse me, the ad industry established the War Advertising Council. Now this was a private volunteer association Of advertising agencies and major manufacturers that worked with the Office of War Information to create public information campaigns for things like women in industry, tire drives, war bond sales, and so on. Um, But the end of the war wasn't the end of the War Advertising Council. It transitioned into a peacetime role um, and continued its public service work under the Office of the Executive And this organizational chart, which I found in the archives, is from the 1950s. It helps to kind of show how the process worked for the Ag Council. So uh, first, nonprofit organizations and federal agencies would request the Ag Council's help if they had a particularly pressing public concern that they wanted the public to know more about. Um, Next, the Council's executive staff would meet with these advisory committees, right? So this is boards of people like CEOs, educators, students, and, admittedly moderate, labor representatives um, to choose which campaigns they were going to work on. And approved campaigns got access to the volunteer labor of advertising agencies and cost-free donated space in print, transit, and eventually broadcast media. So pro-social messages got to the public and uh, the ad industry could signal that it wasn't quite so bad after all. So most of the Ad Council's post-war work was the sort of thing that we recognize when we think about PSAs. And uh, I want to show you a few early examples. So here you see a card that's designed to be posted inside subway cars. They call these car cards. This one is from 1953. Um, And this is a Red Cross disaster preparedness campaign. Um, And uh, we start seeing here now, uh, you guys know that the, Nuclear era is one of my interests too. So it's, it's worth mentioning here that this is just a few years after the Soviet Union exploded its first nuclear weapon. So nuclear anxiety is kind of in the culture at this moment, right? And, and we see the ad council campaign pick up and play with those social tensions in the moment. Um, and just to continue the bleakness, 1953, again, this is, we start to see something familiar. Here's Smokey Bear more in the mode that we're familiar with. Um, But I do want to draw your attention to this being the weirdest Smokey Bear advertisement I have ever seen, mostly because of these sobbing woodland creatures (laughs) kneeling before a fresh grave in the middle of the picture. Um, And although most of the Ad Council's work was turned towards these sort of kind of like uncontroversially pro-social sorts of campaigns, Uh, The documentation from the archive also suggests that um, its members still held that same basic pro-business view that inspired the Act Council's founding in the first place. And sometimes this pro-business view um, found expression actually in PSAs. So um, here's another car card. This one's from 1947. And this is the Miracle of America campaign, which was proposed as, and I quote, a broad nationwide campaign of economic education," end quote. And I mentioned that council campaigns tended to pick up on social tensions that were happening in the moment. So it's worth saying at this moment, this is 1947. It's a few years after the end of the war. There's a lot of labor tension in this moment. There's a lot of struggle over what sorts of institutional power are going to get expressed in the post-war world, right? So it's not exactly surprising that this campaign Really targeted labor concerns, and it had kind of three main points. So you see them. Hard, you see the, the people at the Ad Council arguing in this campaign that what's necessary for our com- country to run smoothly and keep having a miracle of America is uh, smooth relations between uh, labor and management. And in these kinds of man- materials, that often means labor should cooperate with management. Um, you see claims about the inherent strength of the economic system and this sort of idea that direct benefits to the workers are an intrinsic part of this system, right? So it's really saying, hey workers, like this is for you and trying to sort of soothe some of those social tensions. Um, we might also look at the people's capitalism exhibit. So this was a walkthrough setup that was designed designed for display both in the United States and abroad. Um, And it was sponsored jointly, and this is interesting to me, by uh, U.S. Steel and the United States Information Agency, right? So a little bit of that kind of heritage of propaganda comes through. Um, And uh, this is the entrance to the exhibit, uh, People's Capitalism A New Way of Living. It features uh, this steel worker and his family as they go through their day. Um, kind of extols the democratic virtues of stock ownership as being a sort of democratic form of capitalism, right? That's what, they're, that's, that's what this like, notion of the people's capitalism points to. Um, and got in some really nice plugs for steel prefab buildings, along the way. <laughs> um, so these two campaigns were exceptions to the kind of typical innocuous pro-social messages that we see from the Ad Council, and that's most of what we see through the rest of the 50s and in the 60s and even into the 70s, it's more of that sort. So, if we can jump forward um, a couple of decades, we see some typical ad council output from that era. Um, so, we've got campaigns for resource conservation and public health. You've got Woodsy Owl, the notorious anti littering spot with the crying and possibly ghostly Native American, and the sadly forgotten VG is for everybody, which I strongly suggest you look up. It's a real earworm. Um, The 1970s is also a moment where we see the pro-business side of the Ad Council kind of surface again, these logics of economic education surface once more, um, with a campaign called The Economic, excuse me, The American Economic System and Your Part in It. So I have a clip of one of the ads from the campaign, so we've moved into kind of a TV moment now, and I'll show it in just a moment. First, I want to give a little commentary on why I think it's useful to consider a case study like this um, when we're thinking about media dynamics over time. So doing archival research is um, kind of like being nosy for a living. You spend a lot of time reading people's old mail. And uh, I read a lot of old correspondence, memos, uh, meeting reports, meeting minutes and other sort of ephemera of organizational life. And I am so glad that they were on paper and have been saved. Um, Analyzing those documents can help us piece together things that happened in the past, which is useful in itself. But as a media scholar, I can't help but think that it's also helpful for thinking about practices and dynamics of media production and the social world in which media production takes place in a more general sense. And that's meaningful because I have that access to behind-the-scenes communications in the archive, at least some of them. I have access to what they decided to give to the archive. But again, that's kind of stuff that would be hard to get in the present day, just the day-to-day ephemera of organizational life. Now, another caveat here is that the past, of course, does not map neatly onto the present. Um, But looking at ideas and organizations and practices and how they all came together at one moment in time, I think it's helpful for learning different ways to look at how those things recombine in the present. So uh, with the time we have left, I'd like to take some time to consider the American American economic system and your part in it as a case. And then spend some time to think about how that might help us to consider the dynamics and practices of uh, present day media. So we should probably start where most ordinary Americans started, their encounter with these materials with the PSA, which aired in 1976.
2: When we asked Americans who makes our economic system work, we got some surprising answers. Watch. Sarah, do you know? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, what would <about> you, start? <laughs> Here's
3: a woman. Man, who makes our system work?
4: most
3: answer, so we prepared a special booklet on our economic system. For your free copyright, Economics, Pueblo, Colorado, 81009. Every American ought to know what it
1: says.
5: Pardon me. How do you spell economics? E-C-
1: oh, yeah. So, here's a woman. Let's ask her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite part. Uh Between 1976 and 1978, uh, the American Economic System campaign distributed more than 10 million copies of that booklet that you saw in the ad. And it was advertised across print, broadcast, and transit media. Now, you saw at the end of that ad that the campaign was sponsored by the United States Chamber of Commerce. Um, But that was, again, kind of a nominal sponsorship. Um, Commerce actually provided $239,000 of seed money to do the initial research and get the campaign off the ground. The remaining $3 million budget for the uh, economic education system project was uh, provided by corporations and by corporate-funded philanthropic organizations, including the donated labor of advertising executives and creatives, and the donated ad space of media companies. So where did this all start? Uh, September 25th of 1974, Ad Council founding member Chester J. LaRoche had drafted an internal member to other, uh, an internal memo to other members of the executive council. He called for a campaign to support a new expression of American economic identity and again this is a case of the council responding to the prevailing social tensions of the moment. So LaRoche gestured to widespread and mounting inflation, um, pressure from consumer rights and environmental groups for increased industrial regulation, and uh, public perceptions of excessive corporate profits and undue concentration of power. And LaRoche argued that the Ad Council had to address, and I quote, the fundamental problem business faces of winning an understanding of its new sense of its social responsibilities, end quote. Um, An understanding, in other words, of the continuing legitimacy of business, and it changed social context. So there are a few points I'd like to focus on with regard to this campaign. I assure you I could talk about it all night, and I know you have to do later. Um, first is some of the internal back-channel talk um, about planning the campaign, and I think that gives us some pretty clear indications that uh, social imaginaries of American economy, the power of media, and the role of democracy informed the creation of the campaign. So the archives suggest that the Secretary of Commerce at this time, Frederick Bailey Dent, was a major force in getting this campaign going. <clears throat> so we can hear Dent echoing the kinds of social imaginaries of markets and democracy that motivated economic education media in the prior decades. Um, so Dent, in a speech to the executive board, described public support for stricter regulation of business as a case of economic ignorance. And he called on the Ad Council to help Americans understand that they lived in a free society, one where economic freedoms and political freedoms were inseparably linked, and where, quote, tampering in one area inevitably affects the other, end quote. Um, Now, just as an aside, this is an image from Wikipedia. And I don't frequently include images from Wikipedia in my presentations. But this wonderful image of event surrounded by televisions was so great that I felt compelled to include it. Um, This is a public domain photo. It's from the US Department of Commerce's uh, Photographic Services Department. And one of the reasons I love this photo so much is because Dent's rhetoric attributes a lot of power to media. Um, And it echoes the social imaginaries of media that we've seen in mid-century economic education projects. So in that 1974 speech to the Ad Council, Dent argues that mass media is both the cause and the potential remedy for the American public's widespread economic ignorance. He argues that thanks to mass media, Americans are more in touch with the world than ever before. But the world is turning away from free markets more than ever before, and towards other systems, and so American leaders had to step up and foster what Dent called economic understanding and commitment. So Dent went on to say, and I quote, the workers and housewives who participate in our competitive system in countless ways every day. These are people who must, for better or for worse, make difficult and often painful economic choices, either knowingly or by default. These are the people to which the media has unique and effective access." "Quote." So this is a sample page from the booklet that the Ad Council produced. And it opens with a short introduction that explains that we live in a democratic society. So we decide together where our country will go. But we have to understand economics to make wise decisions about the future. Most of the rest of the text focuses on definitions of terms. um, Like the gross national product, personal income, inflation, and so forth. So here's that deficit model of information again, right? So if we get the information to the people, they'll absorb it and assimilate it and use it to guide their decision-making. Is this 1976 yes. bicentennial? Yes, okay. yes, this is, this is absolutely with the bicentennial. And I should also mention here that this is a Charles Schulz uh, Peanuts illustration. These were custom-made for the booklet, and they were, throughout it, almost every page had one. So um, this this text that I've been talking about and some of the back-channel rhetoric that the archive provides um, both express the social imaginaries that we've seen throughout the history of economic education campaigns. But another, I think, notable and consequential aspect of the booklet is the stuff that's not there. And we can see what's not there in the groups that responded to this campaign. So, this is uh, a booklet produced by Americans for a Working Economy. This was a coalition of environmental, labor, consumer, and activist groups that put together a counter campaign in response to the Ad Council's project. So, this is just the cover of their um, slightly less glossy but still um, pretty professionally produced leaflet. By 1976, Frederick Bailey Dent had stepped down from his position as Secretary of Commerce, and Americans for a working economy lobbied his replacement, um, Secretary Elliot Richardson, saying that the Ad Council's book was, quote, simplistic, biased, and misleading, end quote. And basically they asked him for a grant equivalent to the one that the Ad Council had gotten, They said to him, You commerce needs to give us $239,000. Um, and the reason why is because if you really want to educate the American people about economics, you need more than just the corporate perspective. You need a counter-narrative that looks like this, where even as a billboard proclaims that free enterprise works, it's uh, slightly obscured by the line of people in front of the unemployment office. But Richardson refused to fund this leaflet. He said, quote, the department's objective was to develop a very brief, readable, and factual description of the elements, interrelationships, and dimensions of the American economy. The Ad Council's pamphlet, as published, does not advocate positions, nor is it, to the best of our knowledge, factually incorrect in any way." End quote. We can also see what's not in the Ad Council's leaflet by looking to the People's Bicentennial Commission. This was an activist group that tried a similar strategy with broadcast networks when the Ad Council's ads went to air. (coughs) So they prepared a PSA for airing in support of a booklet called Common Sense 2: The Case Against Corporate Tyranny. And uh, one of the details I love about this is how you can see the snake from the Gadsden flag here. They're picking up on um, and the language of tyranny. This is a lot of the sort of imagery of the American Revolution that we see deployed very, very differently a few decades later with the Tea Party. Um, so they lobbied to NBC to get um, PSA time, but NBC refused to air it on two grounds. Um, First, that Common Sense 2 advocated positions on controversial issues, and that was not an appropriate use of PSA space. And second, that uh, Common Sense 2's anti-corporate position made it totally different from the Ad Council campaign, which NBC's censor described as basic nonpartisan information. So. the NBC censor who responded to the People's Bicentennial Commission, his name was Herminio Trabiasis. he said that the purpose of common sense, too, was, quote, obviously to attack rather than explain or discuss the forces you oppose in the American economic system, end quote. So we see in this case that institutions really mattered. The institutions of the state gave the seed grant to kick off the Ad Council's project and denied funding to other groups. The business institutions that gave almost three million dollars in funding to keep this campaign rolling once it got started and keep those leaflets coming to the public. And the media institutions like NBC that made decisions about which campaigns were appropriate for or even worthy of public service airtime. And that's kind of what I'm alluding to in the title for this talk, Facts Survive, that some pieces of information get institutionally recognized as fact, while others get ignored or excluded. And I'm kind of playing there with an idea from the political economist Timothy Mitchell. And uh, he talks about the creation of economic knowledge in particular. He says that economic knowledge isn't neutral, that it participates in making sites where its own facts can survive. So the choices that institutional actors made here legitimize the Ad Council's campaign as a conduit for facts. But I think it's important to recognize that along with basic definitions of economic concepts, the book and the ad, the booklet and the ads promoting it also, delivered a claim that the public was uninformed, and that this too was legitimized as a factual claim. The activists and the coalition groups that attempted to mount counter campaigns had a very different message that Americans were actually pretty informed about how the economic system worked, and they had some opinions about how it should be changed. By holding up the Ad Council's campaign as factual, The Department of Commerce and the TV networks granted institutional legitimacy to the social imaginary that you saw expressed in that ad, that Americans don't understand how free enterprise works. And that for the benefit of everyone, they should. And the business people should be the experts that we turn to, to help us understand. But uh, granted, this was the 1970s, that was a long time ago. And historians and cultural critics are still really grappling with how to make sense of the 1970s and how they changed our culture and our politics. And some historians would argue that we're still too close to the 1970s to take a really clear-eyed look at what happened during that moment. But as you may have guessed by now, I am not one of those historians. Um, And so I think there are some changes that are so big that they're worth acknowledging, at least as a starting point, so, uh, since the 1970s, we've seen a growing distust, distrust of the state for various reasons, um, the almost complete collapse of organized labor, and a turn toward disruptive entrepreneurship rather than big industrial corporations as the sorts of forces that we like to think should govern our economy. And the mass media aren't as relevant or influ- influential, perhaps, as they were during the 1970s. Um, this is an image from. A few decades earlier but it expresses a concern that was persistent with mass media right that mass media would turn people into an unthinking crowd Um, but in the present moment media is more customizable and more customized than it's ever been before so with all that said if the institutional context is different and the media context is different then what can we take out of this case into the present day well I think that the social imaginaries of media and democracy, uh, including the idea that it's crucial for the common people to have a better understanding of the American economy because they're the ones who make decisions in a democracy, those are still being expressed but in a different register. So we don't see broadcast economic education PSAs in this moment, but we do see things like this. This was a series of 20 short films that were released under the name We the Economy on YouTube and other video sharing sites as well as Video by Demand. There's an app for your phone, highly recommend it. Um, This was a public service project and these short films covered issues ranging from how markets work to income inequality to recessions. This was produced by uh, the Microsoft founder Paul G. Allen's company, Vulcan Productions, and in partnership with Morgan Spurlock, you see on the right there, his content marketing firm, CineLab. Now, the image on the left there is from the most popular film in the series. It's called The Unbelievably Sweet Alpacas. It's about um, income inequality. It has the voices of uh, Amy Poehler and uh, various other comedians, um, and it was directed by Adam McKay, who also did the recent feature film, The Big Short. Now, these these films are really weird and interesting. Um, they aren't internally consistent, so that's one big difference, right, from the economic education projects that we saw at mid-century. Um, some of them seem to lobby for a free enterprise vision, for example, Cabanomics, which is the one on the right there with Morgan Spurlock. Um, Completes a, presents a completely a, a historical vision of how markets came into existence that would make the money spin in its grave. Um, but uh, other ones talk about how our system is convoluted and strange. They talk about how entrenched power encourages income inequality. Um, and the fact that these films are pointed at the public, that's just a kind of governmentality, right? Like it's, it's just an internalization of responsibility for these big systemic issues. But even when these films argue that the American economic and financial systems are incredibly messed up, um, these films intimate that better awareness will give us the wherewithal to democratically fix our screwed up systems. Um, even if, it, as The unbelievably sweet alpaca suggests those systems have been raped by the powerful. So that's kind of a paradoxically hopeful expression. And it retains this sense of the importance of media for shaping public attitudes about economics and commerce in a democratic society. So back to the images we started with. Um, I think we can think about these in terms of social imaginaries of the market. And granted, fundamentally, these are businesses. And they're defending their interests. But there's still a notion I see baked into these little projects that if the state limits the workings of business, then it's likely to limit other parts of public life. So there's this kind of suggestion that the best way to serve the common good is to let the market work for the benefit of everybody. But the mid-century sense that institutional cooperation is the way to get this work done has been replaced by a narrative about technological innovation and creative disruption. So just a few points to make about that in closing. First, I think that it matters um, whether people get access to these messages and think of them as making sense. Um, Because if these sorts of messages reflect or inform our background knowledge about what's going to be good for us collectively, then I wonder how they sit alongside these sorts of messages that protest some of the negative externalities of peer-to-peer platforms like Uber or Airbnb. So here at the left, you see some signs from a protest of Airbnb, um, where activists argue that short-term renting is uh, incentivizing landlords to evict long-term tenants, uh, thereby worsening an already desperate housing shortage in San Francisco. And at the right, you see an anti-Uber demonstration. These are drivers in Dallas, Texas. Um, and they're protesting against what they say are unfair labor conditions. So if you can't read the signs in the background, they say, stop cheating us, stop cheating drivers. We didn't sign up for this. and uh, As a person who cares about media, I think it's really instructive to look at the different media forms that these two constituencies are using here, right? So on one hand, we've got a hand-painted handmade sign made out of cardboard. On the other hand, a glossy poster under glass on a bus shelter. So uh, here's another San Francisco Airbnb billboard from the same campaign. And I want to draw your attention to the fact that this is a clear channel billboard. This is still what we might call big media. And it takes big money to rent it. These are institutional spaces of media display where cost poses a barrier to entry and uh, regulations shape what can be said. Um, I mentioned Proposition F at the beginning of my talk tonight. This billboard doesn't mention Proposition F and the reason why it doesn't is because if it did, then they couldn't have advertised on bus shelters because San San Francisco Municipal Transit Authority forbids campaign advertising, and political advertising on its shelters. So again, this is institutions, state institutions, and media institutions. Yet on a cultural level, the collective we find ourselves wondering what to do with institutions. Um, We think of them as being susceptible to bureaucratic red tape and corruption. And that may be why companies in the pure economy are so eager to represent themselves as markets rather than institutions. But this isn't the ideal of a marketplace where every participant is acting under the same general conditions. So again, consider the difference in media forms. Right, With Uber, we can see the corporation using its space in app in ways that ordinary people can't. So there's a question here about who has control over the technology. And there's a real asymmetry here, right, and we can put this alongside some of the asymmetries of information that we see with peer-to-peer platforms for commerce that scholar-activists like Lily Irani or scholars like Mary Grape are bringing forth um, with Amazon Mechanical Turk, where the asymmetry is deeply embedded in the technology and the the technical design of the system. So institutional power is still with us. Institutions of the state that regulate what can be said where. Um, and business institutions that have monetary or technical advantages in getting their message out. And we're seeing people grapple with labor dynamics and collective action in new ways that are very interesting. So I've been talking for a long time. And I'd like to move out of me talking and into us talking by asking you a question that really vexes me and continues to vex me as I uh, go through my research. You heard me call mid-century corporate sponsored economic education campaigns business propaganda. And we saw that the Ad Council started out as a wartime, literally, a propaganda unit. But by the 1970s, we're seeing subtler practices that we could call propagandistic. And yet people argued even then over whether we really should. And commentators in the present day um, definitely talked about the Airbnb campaign. widely circulated tweet that called it a brilliant piece of propaganda. Um, But we're left to grapple with the question of whether it actually is. And um, when I do this kind of work, I find myself wondering if the term propaganda is just so embedded in the 20th century that uh, it's just a relic of it, it needs to remain there. But uh, it raises some questions for us, right? Questions like, does propaganda require the institutional heft of the state, or at least it's tacit blessing? Um, And is propaganda something that can only take place in mass media, or is it applicable to customized media as well? Um, Or do we still need to think about mass media as things like mushrooms? And finally, if the term propaganda is, in fact, a relic of the 20th century, then what sorts of vocabulary can we come up with um, to talk about sense-making and power and persuasion? So, uh, I'll thank you very much, and uh, this is my information if you'd like to be in touch with me about these issues. Thank you. Okay, so, uh, what do you guys think? Go ahead.
2: Yeah, so, uh, thanks first off for an awesome talk. Um, It's, you're, you're kind of, Evidence of how these like social imaginaries are propagated from like industry outward, as well as like your question about propaganda that you closed with, um, were kind of leading me to think about the differences in the social social imaginary that seems to exist at the corporate level. That uh-huh. like is I think it's really interesting looking back on uh, the twentieth century propaganda efforts, especially in comparison to things with like Uber and Airbnb, um, because they're this like investment in shaping people's beliefs and like needing the like buy-in of people at every level almost seems to run counter to the what I think of at least is the more like short-term uh, like purely profit-oriented um, kind of logics that Uber and as well as like climate or um, sorry uh, fossil fuel companies that are like aware of climate change but. Which will like ruin their business model in the long term, but like work to suppress that information. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, to just to stop rambling, I guess um, <laughs> my my question is partly like how has that been a shift like um, from this kind of universal understanding at the corporate level that we need to like align popular beliefs with ours uh, to this what seems like a more crude um, belief. That Uber has that, like, we just need to put this thing in place that we can show people that people come to depend on, and then we show them that it stands to be taken away from them. And so that's how they'll, like, be galvanized to action when we need them. And so, how, if there is a different social imaginary, how is that propagated within the corporate level?
1: Hmm. Okay, so thank you, and great question. And so, we're talking about a shift from aligning, if I heard you correctly, popular beliefs to kind of locking people into a system, right? Um, so I think that I'm really reluctant to say that we've flipped from being entirely one to being entirely the other. I think that those logics were there beforehand, perhaps with uh, something like Uber, it's particularly clear, right? Um, and Perhaps part of that is that it's explicit. You know, startup culture talks a lot about like the first mover advantage, getting people into your system so that you can keep them there. Um, Hmm. I think that one of the things that's missing from, if I had had perhaps two hours to speak to you, um, is the kind of attendant changes in the political landscape, right? And I think that's a lot of what's going on here is that in the moment that I'm talking about in the 1950s or in the 1970s, I don't think that it would have been acceptable to talk as much about working outside of the system as a company as companies like Uber do. Um, So I don't pretend to have all of the answers about how Uber makes it done, but I I think that that is a consequential
0: I mean, you could also think about it as a shift from a push construction of media, which reigns supreme in a lot of the 20th century, to a more pull pro- one, the shift to you know, Uber's campaign, Uber's business model in general. Um, but I guess the, the question I was going to have has to do with this social imaginary, even in the mm-hmm. 50s. Um, because there is, even with the neutral figures like Smoking the Bear, there's quite a controversy about whether you have a vision of the forest as a thing that is kept intact. And then, untamed and not for and not sort of baked and pillaged by, uh, by by foresters or okay. whether like annual burnings are good I mean there's a yeah, lot of politics absolutely. behind that and they are taking a stance. Mm-hmm. But when you sort of look at a debate like that, let alone the debates you're talking about, there was it was a partisan world. There were people that thought regulation was a good thing and that there's yeah. a long tradition of that, versus absolutely. people who thought unrained, untrammeled capitalism was the way to go. So and I understand that the Ad Council is speaking for it, Industry, but there is a strong institutional counter counter voice Absolutely. in the form of the various regulatory commissions, members of Congress, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So how did that how did that play out in terms of constructing that imaginary?
1: The presence of more moderate forces. Well, yeah, the institutional forces, political yeah.
0: forces, party forces. Um.
1: Well, I think what I see in the archive when I go to look at this is a lot of kind of jockeying behind the scenes, right, and. Um, One of the ways that the the appearance of consensus gets made is something like the book that I was talking about from the 1970s is by being able to list in the back a huge list of organizations that have all signed up to endorsing it or agreeing to distribute it or at least saying that they approve of it enough that their name needs to be on it. Right? So, um.
0: But I guess like afl CIO wasn't one of the signatories. And this right. is still the That's day right. when there is, I mean, you're
1: right, labor is definitely weakened by this point. But, but there are labor still, unions who sign up to this leaflet, oh, yeah, okay. they're okay. absolutely. I mean, they're more moderate labor unions, but they're there. And um, I think the thing that really draws me to the idea of social imaginaries is that they can be these, uh, you know, to borrow from STS, they can almost be similar to boundary objects, right? Like that there's this kind of coordinating function um, that involves strategic vagueness and, you uh, lofty ideals, right? And you, if you can get a lot of people together under that, they're not necessarily agreeing about the specifics of a particular piece of legislation. But they can't say, like, yes, this should be done in the name of the American way.
0: Right, right. So, so I guess from the STS framework, something like interpretive flexibility, at least from the Scott idea, that would be an interesting one. Because mm-hmm. the same campaign mm-hmm. can actually be saying quite different things to different constituencies if it's pitched at the right level of abstraction. Yeah, I, I think that's I, I so true.
1: Okay. Yeah.
4: Absolutely. Please. So um, you made this distinction between uh, kind of state sponsored versus uh, purely business sponsored uh, advertising as kind of a way to think about how we can define something as propaganda or not propaganda. And I'm wondering, as someone who has used historical methods and say this since the 70s, if you think that the current way that lobbying culture works and the current way Campaigns or finance, etc., has to necessarily complicate this sort of dichotomy. So, for example, like an ad for Coke Industries is not state-sponsored propaganda, but if we accept that a big part of the Republican agenda is set by people like the Cokes, then where do we draw that line, and how do we define propaganda within like a climate like that? Mm -hmm. And same with Airbnb. I mean, I like I I used to work in. tech, and a lot of these companies, as you well know, like lobby for very specific political goals that are not apolitical just because they're not, just because they're like wearing t-shirts and hoodies. No. <laughs> <laughs> like,
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, first, from a historical perspective, Benjamin Waterhouse's book, Lobbying America is really awesome, and I would highly recommend it, so check it out. Um, so, okay, so the distinction between state-sponsored and corporate-sponsored Um, persuasive materials. This is something that I haven't actually come to a satisfactory conclusion on, right? Um, I think that there's an urge to define something like a Koch brothers ad as being propagandistic because that word gives us such a convenient shorthand, right? It, It gives us a way to talk about messages that we think are not actually deceptive so much as putting forth a very edited version of the truth, right? And and that may be advancing the interests of powerful people whose interests may not be aligned with ours. Um, I find myself thinking that the term propaganda is less useful um, than what it signals when we feel the urge to call something propaganda, right? So I, I feel like it's really easy to say, well, the Airbnb campaign is propaganda, and that's the end of the story. Like, it sucks. It's bad. It has no redeeming features, and I think that that actually should be the beginning of our work as media scholars, right? To dig into that and say, like, what is it about that that made us have that reaction? Um, and how do we see the enactment of power happening through media? What are the um, kind of vernacular theories that somebody like the Koch brothers or the people who do their PR might have in doing that kind of work. So that is, that's just my opinion about uh, how propaganda can still be useful to us, like when we feel that urge to call something that name, that's a signal that we need to dig deeper.
5: Thank you for a fabulous talk, Caroline. Um, I have a question also about propaganda, although I don't want to hold you to for too long because I think you've already given like a satisfied, satisfying track. Um, but um, I only know it from the German context and I would be interested in the American context, but propaganda is one of the strange words that actually um, historically makes a shift in meaning. Um, I know that, you know, in the 1920s with um, a big focus on Bildung and education, Um, really important cultural institutions that would definitely have uh, identified themselves as social democratic would have used propaganda as kind of synonymous for um, educating people, but really in a positive way with like a porous structure where they could participate in the process of education. So I think we see a shift in the term of what propaganda means, um, and it's interesting because oftentimes in history, a new term emerges. But propaganda is interesting in that way, that it remains and the meaning changes. So maybe you should be bold and signify a, a new shift in meaning.
1: I like it. Okay, so you've, thank you. And you've given me an opportunity to talk a little bit about where the word propaganda comes from, which I would love to so, hear. Um, A lot of kind of popular histories of propaganda trace back the word propaganda to the Catholic Church. Um, And the notion of uh, communications from the Catholic Church in the 17th, and 18th, and 19th centuries that would be propagations of the faith. And this sort of draws on a botanical metaphor, right? Um, If any of you are gardeners or you spend time around plants a lot, a lot of times you can, what they call propagating plants from cuttings is kind of like taking a cutting and encouraging it to take root as a whole new plant. And there's some indication that uh, the sense of propaganda as being something that's um, sinister or perhaps to bad purposes. Uh, This shows up in the popular press in the United States in the late 19th century, and it's usually in reference to immigrant groups from predominantly Catholic countries, um, which is interesting. Uh, there's a an attempt in the 1920s to rehabilitate propaganda which propaganda scholars sometimes refer to as like the movement of the new propaganda which so I guess this would be the new new propaganda but um uh, in the 20s yeah so people like Bernays and uh, folks At, like that
6: but after the Great War the, the public anxiety about propaganda was so extreme that I, it's just hard to imagine that a few years later
1: it is. They it's were really weird. To
6: redeem it because by World War Two, they were still referencing World War One propaganda as you know something that was misleading. We had to do better than they did during World War One. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So and it,
1: I, I have to admit that World War One is slightly outside of my area, so I'm not as familiar with it. But, but by the time you get to 1929, that's when Edward Edward Bernays is pro, is publishing his book, which is called Propaganda, and he's saying. You know, this word's gotten a bad rap, but there's but I'm not talking about something that is evil. I'm talking about something that's a scientific way to connect with people's he's he's taking for Freud, he's saying like, you know, we need to connect with people's urges and harness them in the name of the public good. Um, so yeah, that's that's actually a really good point and puts Bernays's work, which is kind of really prelude to the sorts of stuff that I study, in the context of why people need to rehabilitate. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, and, and by the time, you know, of course when World War
0: II comes around, there's a lot of concern about propaganda in the mass mm-hmm. media, and that kind of sinister uh, association throws. grows. But, but it's it's semantic slippage in other cultures, Germany being one of them, is, is interesting because yeah, there's advertising, of course, in, in Germany, but um, that semantic slippage here is like almost a project in the ad industry, which is trying to, Use a clean model of basically propagating the same kind of thing, except it's perfectly legit and it's a business. It's a business strategy, as opposed to the kind of sinister edges that it has in our particular culture. But in other cultures, it's maybe not so. That, that distinction is not so pronounced.
1: Yeah, I. This.
0: I say that all this is coming from the ad council. Uh, it, it's an, almost a necessity to claim that to claim that space. Yeah,
1: and that is one interesting thing. You don't really see the people at the Ad Council talking about what they do as propaganda. um, Really, at all, in the moments when they're actually enacting it, Um, somebody like LaRoche, um, who's kind of calling for the revival of economic education campaigns, um, kind of concedes to a reporter during an interview that campaigns like The Miracle of America were baldly propaganda and were anti-communist in nature um but that the stuff that we're doing in the present day that's, that's not propaganda. um your history was really fast because you didn't
6: have much time so this makes sense but i feel like you kind of uh you uh, reached out into the 40s and 50s a bit into the 70s but you skipped the 60s which i'm thinking is probably it's got to be a key reference point or say, well, the Ad Council, National Association of Manufacturers, and the fact that uh, kind of left-wing radical anti-capitalism is virtually mainstreamed and then rejected, it, you know, by the silent majority. And all this kind yeah. of. thing. But you know, it just seems like that would be a really rich. A yeah. uh, decade for con- contextualizing what you're talking
1: about. If I may. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a, uh, just these are all my like extra slides, right? <laughs> so um, this was 1962. Um, And this was a television campaign that I didn't have time to mention in my talk, it got cut for time, so I'm so glad you mentioned it. Um, And uh, this was uh, actually more um, academic in nature than some of the other um, kind of business oriented pieces that I've focused on for this talk. The main sponsor was the American Economic Association and also the Joint Council for Economic Education. But the sponsors were corporate. So you see, for example, this is from a Michigan alumni magazine, this Union Carbide ad. Um, And uh, the text is awfully small, but they're talking about how they made the decision to sponsor this telecourse, which was broadcast. Um, So that's, yeah, one example of the kinds of things that are happening in that and There are plenty of others as well. wondering if there was
7: any, because I don't don't know if communism was so much mentioned in your talk, but wondering if there was, but it's certainly implicit in like every single aspect of of this. I'm wondering if it was ever made explicit in any of the materials that you found, like a particular sort of like, and the fear of unions leads us to, you know, like da-da-da-da, if that ever like explicit, because then I'm thinking about the current context and the ways in which we criticize or don't criticize Airbnb for being vague in certain ways or not but wondering in this sort of pretty you know um, you know concerned fear that pervaded all aspects of society not just business really if communism became a thing that was pushed to the you know foreground ever in what you were looking at please excuse me Microsoft is getting <laughs>
1: excited um so uh, yeah um anti-communism does surface. And uh, one of the decisions that I had to make as a person who's trying to look at a bounded category is to focus on the things that were pro-business more than the things that were anti-communist, right? Um, because I could write a whole different world of things about anti-communism, um, and certainly there's like there's overlap between those two, right? Um, and it shows up in things like the Sloan series from the 1940s. Um, there is actually, one of the cartoons features a literal red wave crashing on the shores of America um, with yellow stars in it, right? So there are moments like that. Um, I think one of the things that draws me to these sorts of materials in particular is the they've got a kind of evacuated quality, right? Um, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of careful elision of politics and an effort to present things as being neutral and factual. And that dynamic itself is super interesting to me. So to answer your question, yes, it does come up. Um, I don't have as many examples to hand in my back catalog of slides to show you. But uh, yes, it, it does overlap. I have a sort of methods slash speculation question. Because you had mentioned being in the archives and correspondence in the paper. And I'm just, as, a, as an archival researcher, your thoughts going forward in terms of what does the archive look like with the email correspondence? Or, are you Do you have a sense that things are being kept and documented? Would you be able to do this? Will a future student be able to do this same kind of work 20 or 30 years from now? Or do you? It's just a big methodology question as an archivist. Thank you for this question. Um, I'm kind of a pessimist, so my, Im- imme- my immediate urge is to say, no, we're all screwed, but I don't think that's actually true. Um, when I go to do research in an archive, that's a collection of papers that's been processed into files, but that was in somebody's filing cabinet in their office. And various kind of persuasive moments needed to happen in terms of like, those materials getting stored for a long time. Those materials may be going down into the basement of the building. Um, somebody who is the like in charge of the like back files, deciding to hang on to them for a long time, and and eventually somebody from that company getting the contact from an archivist who thinks that that collection has like importance to the public, right? And I want to believe that there are companies in our current moment, even though we're now mostly digital and not on paper, um, who are having that kind of foresight and care about their own companies. Um, But it is a big concern, right? Um, Just because, if nothing else, you don't need to have paper in a certain format to read it, right? Um, And in some cases, you know, I would love to look at the communications that people had on um, systems like CompuServe or AOL, and, and it's... To my understanding, possible that those are out there somewhere, but um, you know, we don't know. So, I, despite my desire to be really pessimistic, um, I want to be cautiously optimistic and say that what survives in the archives isn't the totality of what happens in any given moment, and I think that's true of our moment as well.
7: Um, I really appreciated the history that you provided and you mentioned early on that um, these business sponsored messages kind of originated in the 1930s and that occurred to me that it would be a very dramatic time um, for these messages to emerge in terms of the state of the American economy and then um, bringing it forward to your current example of Uber, um, I just looked it up and it was founded in 2009, um, which was also a very kind of traumatic time for the state of the economy. So I wonder, in looking at these historical examples um, in in relationship to kind of the ebb and flow of the economic state, like I if we could provide some context to that, like are there changes in the way these messages are framed? Um, and then another question attached to that would be, what was the reception like? Because we know how many of these brochures, for example, were printed and distributed, but what was the reaction of the public, um, was it received was there more of a counter-narrative that wasn't necessarily captured
1: in paper material forms? Okay, so first of all, um, very perceptive comment that um, yes, these campaigns do tend to arise at moments where there's a lot of um, concern about the economy, and that typically tends to follow on from when um, people aren't working as much, right? Or when uh, savings have gotten destroyed by stock fluctuations, what have you. so yes, I think that's true. Um, it would take a more quantitative scholar than I am to map that in a more precise way, but just on a sort of vernacular level, yeah, I think that's really perceptive. Um, are there changes in how it's framed? Um, do you mean in terms of, uh, in relation to the, the general economic climate of the I think department? so, yeah, because I
7: think it would have been more justifiable to say that this is, the, like, messages like these would be more educational in the context Mm -hmm. of an economic downturn Mm -hmm. to stimulate business and consumption, where in that specific context, it would be
1: seen as a positive thing. Okay, I got you now. Right, yes. Yes. So, um, yeah.
7: uh, just a small anecdote too, um, I went to a conference that was um, hosted at the Media Lab, and a representative of Uber, who ironically used to work with the World Bank and NGO, and then moved over to corporate, um, pretty much was defending Uber to this massive audience and saying that they have created jobs to stimulate the American economy at a time where it was needed. And I mean, I, I am not supporting Uber in any way. I'm not trying to uh, make any statement about that. But I think the way that he framed that in a public setting was interesting as well, um, to, to cast it in an economic context rather than one that had to do with labor. And yeah.
1: Yeah. I think you get what Yeah, and it's a really powerful offer, right? Um, Especially when people are dealing with precarity or um, unreliable employment, this idea that this service can help people to access that is really attractive. Um, Just to return for a moment to the question about framing, um, I know the most about the 1970s and 1980s in this regard. And so I do see a shift from the 1970s when there's a moment where it's like, we need to be we need the American public to be more educated because otherwise you know, this, this whole party's gonna go off the cliff, um, kind of gives way by the mid 80s to um, appeals about how people can be, and particularly children, can be um, maximally successful, right? So it, it goes from being sort of like ameliorating the hurt to like mm-hmm. how, how high can you reach? Um, I do say that and you had a third question as well. and then Oh
7: no, it okay. was more about the reception.
1: Of, um, oh, the reception, yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, I have limited access to that because uh, the Ad Council did do pre and post surveys, right? So before the campaign kicked off, they had some market research um, done to understand both what people's attitudes were towards the American economic system as it was and um, to their level of understanding of concepts like recession and gross national product and that kind of thing. Um, and this campaign ran for a couple of years. And in the post-moment, um, you know, I would say every six months or so they were doing surveys to like kind of see how they were doing. And the finding at the end was that I think something like 80% of the American people said that they had seen the leaflet, um, but there wasn't a dramatic Increase in the level of their sort of ability to explain particular concepts. There's a small bump, but not a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like more uh, critical reception, um, I'm afraid that beyond the institutional level, that's something that for me so far is still a mystery. What's the balance in which you've uh, researched
6: between um, ad council? kinds of information that are focused on attitudes and beliefs that might translate into action like feel this way about business and then you might do something positive for business <clears throat> online right versus uh, material that is really directly related to personal action and you know behavior like uh, here's what you can do not not to get meaty for example yeah <laughs> or uh, uh, in the 80s um, just say no to drugs was mm-hmm. like so dominant mm-hmm. in what ad council uh, discourse was. It was all the anti-drug stuff, and I'm wondering just kind of what the balance you saw over time. If, mm-hmm. if, did you see the balance shift over time in the 80s? Does the, even at, at this moment of supreme confidence
1: in capitalism in certain ways at a level of official discourse, does it recede in favor of this war on drugs mm-hmm. stuff? Um, so that is such a great point and um, actually one that I hadn't thought of, so I'm so glad that you mentioned it. and. Um, In the Ad Council materials, and um, I also studied some materials from Junior Achievement, which is like a business advocacy for kids kind of organization. Um, There is, for the most part, like even into the early 80s, it's more about sort of acculturating people to organizational life. Mm -hmm. Um, And for, uh, I'm writing my dissertation right now, so I'm, Sticking within this project, but one of the things that I think is really tantalizing, um, but can't fit into the dissertation is going to have to be after it, is this kind of shift that happens in the late nineteen eighties and into the early nineteen nineties, where we move from economic education to economic and financial literacy, and I think that that's where that crucial moment becomes like the call to action for the individual, right? Because um, there's not much that an individual can really do to halt inflation or recession, but there is something an individual can do about like their home savings account. Or um, you see, like, now there are PSAs, if you've seen the PSAs that say feed the pig, they're really creepy. They have, like, an a anthropomorphized pig. And basically, the idea is saying, like, put a little change in your piggy bank, you know, take $10 off of your paycheck and put it in the bank. And that is a really individualized message. In a way that like isn't
3: as present in the materials that I look at. I I wanted to follow up on that with an observation. Um, I mean, every couple of years you see a flurry in the media about how school kids you know don't have you know, fill in the blank financial skill. Um, and when I, I saw one of these, I don't know about a year ago on. A, on the WBUR website, and when I started pulling sort of the threads on who this was, I mean, it turns out it's the debt industry and retail banking. So while there aren't the large institutions except for those pigs, and I, I saw them and it's like, what? I mean, that imagery, I mean, somebody should take the time to deconstruct it because I, you know, pig has such a you know set of connotations in terms of capitalism. I mean, I mean, I mean, what were they thinking? Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, Absolutely. But when you start, you find that the stuff you know comes up every couple of years, and there are in the schools, you know, education programs that teach people how to be, you know, good consumers um, and you know, you know, good savers and good credit card borrowers. Um, you know, regardless of whether those are the right actual financial skills to survive you know, this particular economy, and regardless of whether or not, you know, most people in public schools actually, you know, get enough money that they can be saving, let alone, you know, feeding themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's so very true. Um, I see a lot of, you know, I go looking for things that are similar to the things that I study in the present day, and We the Economy is just about the only example that I've found that really tightly, like, sticks to, uh, so just pull that up. Um, Really tightly sticks to kind of that old model or tightly as anything. But what I see a lot more of, which there isn't quite so much of a direct analog for in the kind of mid to late 20th century, is this kind of, like you said, this discourse about how to be a good participant in finance, right? And so if you go onto YouTube, Bank of America has a YouTube channel where they put out videos about like, here's what a mortgage is, and here's what a fixed rate mortgage is, right? And, and um, that have a lot of like similar imagery, like there's a lot of American flags and white picket fences and happy families. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that is the area to look for if you want to look to corporate produced materials that claim to educate, but that maybe like don't contain kind of a critical perspective about what it is that we're doing when we participate.
0: System. I have a question about the, uh, the People's Capitalism campaign. Oh, sure. You know yeah. And um, two questions. So, one, US Steel, the Ad Council, and USIA. The USIA at that time still has a lot of New Deal lefties creeping around. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, that must have been a really interesting campaign to put together. But, secondly, I thought it was pitched overseas that anything with USIA money could not be shown. West. I thought they were, I thought the Republicans in particular were very well, touching really about federally financed campaigns of any kind in huh. the American market.
1: So that campaign, that um, exhibit was shown in, I believe it's Union Station, it was shown in a train station in the United States. Now, that may have been before USIA decided, to, I, I'm not sure how they might have lawyered the rules to make that work. But it was displayed. I'm almost certain it's in New York City. I would have to go back to the documentation to check. But um, yeah, it was it was shown at home in a train station for people to walk through and observe and take part in. Because it's, it's a huge overseas campaign. I mean, yeah. This group is bombarded with it too.
0: Yeah. In, in terms of your question about communism, I mean the people's capitalism mm-hmm. is is it's pretty explicit in that. Mm-hmm. Way. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting because like I know that they were very touchy about that. I forgot what the law is actually.
1: Yeah, that is, that is really interesting, and I actually was not aware of that loss. So um, I can go back to the documentation and email you about that yeah, one if you'd like to you like know. Yeah, absolutely.
7: Just had a quick question. I was wondering if um, you saw any examples of,
0: of other propaganda or persuasive material uh, that referenced some of this work, almost as if you know it was a. a, a Reference we you know as almost as, as academic reference was so that this network of almost links or hyperlinks that kind of comes up to this to two other forms of, of media.
1: So I'm so glad that you asked that. Um, okay, so I have noticed that um, there was a promotional video in 1987. Wait, no, this was a more recent promotional video for Junior Achievement, which now does computer simulations of business for kids, um, and they actually pulled some footage from one of the uh, um, cartoons in the Alfred B. Sloan sponsored cartoon series for kind of background um, but you also see and actually that's this is what got me started in studying these cartoons um, was uh, in 2008 Make Mind Freedom was circulating on um, social media which is how I found out about it um, because I'm from Missouri and I uh, my sister is friends with lots of conservative people that she went to high school with, and one of them posted this saying, "This is people in people in 19, 1947, by the way, they got it wrong here, but people in 1947 knew better than we do today about how economics should work. Like we need to restore to that period of time because clearly we don't get it now. We're about to elect a socialist, um, so I actually just pulled this. It was like if only cartoons were still like this, I would let my son watch TV." Um, and uh, so there's this kind of narrative about like these materials get held up as proof of an imagined past and I think that that is very very interesting so but I mean we saw that on the other side of the political aisle as well um, in this presentation right with the People's Bicentennial Commission like Drawing on the imagery of the Gaston flag, and like they, you know, go and disrupt meetings wearing tricorn hats, and and do the whole thing that we then saw um, adopted by the Tea pretty much later. So there's this kind of notion of, you know, use like what's history usable for, and I think that really happens with especially uh, the digitized versions of some of these materials. So thank you. That was an awesome question.
6: And I think we're, if we're done. going, going, gone, okay. Well, thanks. Thank for you, everyone.